As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. All right, so we have our long-awaited episode on mental models for product leadership. Now, I am incredibly excited for this one because this is the really the topic that got me into mental models. I stepped up into the position of VP of product at Dribbble, and I was looking for different ways and methods to better communicate with my team, with my CEO, um, and and different ways of thinking about product to make sure that we didn't have blind spots. We, we had less risk, right? Um, and that we were making the right decisions. So that's where I originally turned to mental models. And this is where I think you'll find a lot of power in mental models when they're being used with a group. So I had two amazing conversations, one with Gabriel Weinberg and Lauren McCain, uh, Gabriel being the CEO of DuckDuck. Go, Lauren McCain coming from a, a strategist background. Um, and then with Brandon Cho, the VP of product at Shopify, all about how they use mental models with their teams and the difference it's made with them. So that's a bit of what we're going to talk about today. So stay tuned. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective, where your hosts, Michael Saka and Mike Belsito. So where should we start today? So I have, um, so I, I talked with Gabriel Weinberg about some of his favorite mental models when he was thinking about working with a team. And it started with kind of your team makeup, how to think about that team, who to hire, and when to be satisfied with their team. One of the first principles that he brought up was Joy's Law. And what Joy's Law states is that the best people work for someone else. And that doesn't mean that they work for someone. It just means that they don't necessarily work for you. And you may not be able to get them to work for you. Here's Gabriel. There's this law called Joy's Law, um, which is from Bill Joy, the founder of Sun Microsystems, 
who said the smartest people work for other people. Basically, it's a summary. Um, and what it basically says is you're you're not going to hire um, the the best people in the world to work for your company or your team. It's just impossible because you're competing with every other company in the entire world, um, and you have to realize that you're not going to do that. Um, and then uh, Rumsfeld. Um, Donald Rumsfeld, the previous Secretary of Defense, also has a similar law called Rumsfeld Rule, which is you go to the ar- you go to war with the army you have, not the army you want um, or you want to have. And it's basically the same concept, but both of those stories are actually kind of interesting. So like um, Rumsfeld actually gave this, uh, came out with this law. It wasn't like he academically formulated it. It was at a uh, press conference where he was really asked about um, weapons of mass destruction and in particular uh, why in Iraq um, the you know troops weren't outfitted with the correct um, or the best equipment to protect themselves from IEDs and Joy's law was formulated also at a live event um, when he was asked about Bill Gates and competing with Microsoft and kind of how they're going to do that at an intellectual level um, but both quotes have been the, the circumstances have been lost to history. That's and it. I've kept coming back to you go to war with the army that you have concept over and over in the last couple of weeks because it's easy to look at the people on your team and say, well, I wish you had this skill or I wish you were a little bit more talented in this area rather than looking at them and say, how can I make this group of people as effective as possible? Because this is the team that I have in this moment. You can't just fire everyone and rehire. You don't even know if the people that you're going to hire are going to be a better fit. So always be optimizing your team is really what I took away from this and looking at them and saying, how can I better utilize the team that I have in front of me today? And this kind of brings to the next point that came up in our conversation, which is around the dream team. If you remember, the dream team was the Olympic basketball team for the United States. And what they would do is pull the best basketball players in the world together. So we had the best forward, the best guard, the best center in the world competing. And you would think no matter what, they would win the gold. Now, at first they were dominant. The first year was was memorable. But they weren't always dominant as this continued. And uh, so as it relates to go to war with the army that you have, there are rules around optimizing your team so that they can be world class, even if they aren't the best in the individual positions that they're in. So here's Gabriel and Lauren. To really be successful, you can be successful with, you know, um, not the best person in the entire world. It's about constructing a team um, really effectively and constructing a team which we call 10x teams in the book um, which is this concept that if you arrange people in the right way with the right skills and because people have different skills they can come together and form a cohesive um, team that just works really well and the opposite is true I mean that's that that was one of my favorite stories of the book was how we introduced that chapter talking about um, the dream team. And we talk about how, uh, you know, not everyone can form a team like the United States national basketball team, the first dream team. But then we also talked about how um, the dream team didn't win every Olympics and that a lot of it was the years that they didn't do well was about, you know, just not being cohesive as a team and working together and having people that fit the right roles on the team and how, uh, you know, sometimes you could be pulling from the greatest group of people, but if you don't 
work with them in the right ways, you're not going to be successful. Yeah. And in particular, they won three Olympics in a row that kind of dominated. And then that fourth Olympics, they, they lost multiple games. They lost to Puerto Rico, which arguably is, is part of the United <laughs> States. Yeah, which is pretty depressing for them, I think. <laughs> and then ultimately Argentina won the gold medal. And, um, you know, there was a lot of analysis afterwards, but really what they did, they didn't have, they had a couple of NBA players, but they weren't world-class related to the dream team players. Um, but they had worked for years. They had gelled as a team. Um, and contrary to what Lawrence said, the, the U S team didn't really even have players who were the best in every position. You know, they just kind of, um, had really big stars who didn't necessarily work well together. And it's really a testament to the fact that if you can arrange a team, you don't have to have the best people, but you can still be world-class if you can arrange them in the right way. So I, I recently read Good to Great by James Collins, uh, which he talks a lot about this concept. The premise of the book is that him and his research team spent time analyzing and interviewing companies throughout history who have excelled compared to their competitive companies at the same time. Um, the competitive companies often achieved mediocre success, um, but these, what he called great companies, exceeded stock market expectations, exceeded returns to their shareholders, and exceeded company growth. Um, and, and what he wanted to find out was what set those companies apart. And there was, there was one, one example in particular that stood out in relation to this concept, and that was from Wells Fargo, where their CEO would oftentimes rearrange executives until he found the right fit. So rather than just hiring and firing executives, he would get the right people who he saw potential in, and then he would try to find the right fit. And once he had the right fit, the company was better off because they had the information, they had the dedication to the company and to the mission. And once he found the right fit, they were really able to excel. And this proved to be an incredibly effective strategy for Wells Fargo. What he didn't do was go out and constantly hire and fire executives, which, which creates turmoil and a lot of turnover in hopes that he would find someone better than he had. Instead, he tried to optimize the team that he had and arrange them to be the greatest version of themselves. All right, so I also talked with Brandon Cho, the VP of product at Shopify. And he talked about this moment, which I'm sure we have all experienced where we're pitching a product idea and we can just tell the stakeholder we're pitching to is frustrated or they're not quite seeing the vision. It's interesting when you, <laughs> I always uh, liken it to you're in a meeting with a stakeholder as a product person and and they're just like, you can see almost like frustration in their face sometimes and they're just like, why don't you just do this? Or like, it can just go faster or whatever. And, and it's sort of like, in a way you're like, you feel like they're being ridiculous. But when you pull back some of the layers and you, you know, you ask them the why, the why do you feel that way, et cetera, et cetera. And you get down to the layers, there's actually legitimate reasons about why they feel that way. And uh, what I've always found is that these mental models, uh, like the ones I wrote in that article, are, are really the culmination of all the, the ways that once I got to root, to root cause or really the, the fundamental reason why uh, uh, you know, something isn't right or we feel that a decision should be made a different way, uh, that these mental models are the actual reason. All right, we're gonna talk about more of this right after a quick word from our sponsors. All right, so getting back to, to Brandon's story about the stakeholders, it's tough, but having that empathy is key 
in those situations so that you can understand their perspective. Last week, we talked about kind of this third story mental model, which helps to to see what's happening through other people's perspective to better understand where they're coming from, to not get defensive and, and to look objectively at the situation. Um, and then we can be more successful in getting buy-in for our ideas. If we understand their motivation, we can cater the pitch to it. Basic sales 101, so relatable in product as well. Now, if you're interested in mental models and you want to start using them with your team, which is where you really start to see the power of them, how do you do that? Do you just call it out? Do you say, hey, let's use this mental model on this problem? Or is it something more subtle, something more ingrained in you and you, and ingrained in your team throughout the conversation? So I asked Gabriel what he does at DuckDuckGo. Yeah, we, we really do try to mention it by name. And so there really is something powerful about putting a name to the concept. And I think that's part of the reason of why we kind of bold the terms throughout. And um, Laura could speak to this too, because we we walk every morning and we try to talk about things. And we often will relate the concept to the name because once you do that and everyone knows the name and the concept, you're instantly conveying everything about it, right? Um, and that's the beauty of mental models. Because like if everybody's on the same page with critical mass and you can say, this is a critical mass problem, then you don't have to walk through, you know, from scratch every time, like what that means, right? Um, and you can already reason about it at a higher level. Um, but in terms of like operationalizing, so we, there are several that we talk about a lot. One that I use that we talk about a lot that isn't as much used, I think other places is forcing function. Um, and so forcing function is this idea that you have a set time or place in your calendar um, to do something that forces you to critically think about something. Um, and there's many ways to do that. One, a couple ways that we do it are we have standing one-on-one. -on -one. Everyone has a one-on-one -on -one with their career advisor every week. Um, and that forces you to have this meeting and it's a place to think critically about what you're doing that week um, and raise any issues you may have. Similarly, we have postmortems after every project and kickoff calls as they're getting started. And it's a place to, a designated time and place to think critically about the project. Um, and by setting these things up, just preset in your calendar, it really forces you um, to do that. And we try to create these forcing functions wherever possible. I think with the postmortems, you know, everyone's familiar with the idea of doing a postmortem when something really bad happens. But I think what you guys do great is is kind of doing it for any kind of major project because something goes bad any project you do. There's going to be something you can learn from and setting aside the time, even when things are going well and you're like, oh, I got to move on to the next thing. Really, that forcing function of always doing that meeting allows you to always learn from, from every project rather than just saying, I don't have time. I have to move on. That's a really good point. That really underscores the the point. I, you could make an analogy to board meetings, right? No one really ever skips their board meeting, even if there's nothing really eventful to say. But the um, time and effort spent in getting together the board materials is that forcing function to really think critically about the business. Um, and the same is true with the postmortem. Like Lauren said, we do it for every project. And most projects maybe went well, but there's always something to talk about in terms of how to improve uh, going forward. And what about PMs? Maybe you're leading a team of product managers. How do you use these mental models when trying to lead them? 
Here's Brandon again. I would say like, I mean, and they're definitely part of my intuition now, but they are, they are meant, like they're actually most useful when you're actually communicating them to the team and getting everyone to understand the thinking behind that mental model and for them to build it into their own intuition. Cause that's really how, you know, uh, teams go faster. And, and I think like uh, at Shopify, like uh, the team I I'm leading now is like 200 people. Right. So I think like things like these have become extremely high leverage, uh, for me as a product leader here to be able to do like massive, uh, uh, create massive impact into the way that multiple teams ship. So the communication of it is actually, it's like the teaching a person to fish versus fishing for them, right? And, and that, that is 100% like the most important thing. And, and the other part is like any good product manager, you're never going to, like you should never just uh, sit on a pedestal and black box your, your decisions. So you have to explain the why. And, and, and that is what really gets teams to buy in and trust you and then also levels everyone up around you so that really you become redundant. Like that that honestly is, is my personal goal whenever I'm a PM on any given team is like PMs are really just uh, always trying to be the inverse of whatever the team is. So if the team is lacking, let's say marketing skills, you, you got to fill in that hole, right? If, they're, if they don't have the business acumen, that's you. But really, if you can actually find a way for the team to, uh, handle the entire breadth of what it takes to build and, and grow a product, you don't need to, you don't even need to be there. And that's how you scale. Like, that's what I always coach my own PMs on. It's like the way you can scale is actually to scale your, to, to get rid of, get, get rid of your role as, as required on that team and then do the same on another team. And all of a sudden, Hey, you're PMing four teams at once, uh, without having to burn the oil all the time, because you've been able to actually build up sort of the mental models with all of them uh, so that they can they can do it themselves. So I hope you enjoyed this kind of deep dive into mental models. We'll probably be doing more and more around this concept in the in the future, uh, but we're going to break here in terms of a mini series and we'll be back next week with some more product content. Um, and hopefully I'll have uh, Mike Belsita with me as well. So thank you so much for listening and we'll see you soon. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It's your support that keeps the show going. Rocketship.fm is now part of the Podglomerate Network. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the Podglomerate Network, go to thepodglomerate.com. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. If you go to productcollective.com, you could check out live video interviews, sign up for our newsletter, be a part of our Slack group with over 6,000 product people. Just check it out at productcollective.com.